Hi, I'm Matthew Kind. Every Monday, look for a fresh new episode where I'll take you behind the scenes and interview the insiders that are shaping the rapidly evolving cannabis industry. Learn more at cannainsider.com. That's C-A-N-N-A insider.com. Now here's your program. Can we deconstruct the cannabis plant in the lab, reduce cost, and unlock a myriad of applications and benefits that we would not be able to do if we were working solely with the cannabis plant? Here to help us answer that question is Benjamin Chiarelli, CEO of Celebre. Benjamin, welcome to Canna Insider. Matt, pleasure to be with you, my friend. Give us a sense of geography. Where are you in the world today? Uh, We're in sunny San Diego. It's a tough life we live here, 72 and sunny every day. Good. And what is Celebre on a high level? So at a, at a high level, we're interestingly not a cannabis company. It just so happens that our first application is in the cannabis section for a whole host of reasons we can dig into today if you'd like. Um, but what we are is a manufacturing technology company. And uh, we leverage what we believe to be the world's most sophisticated manufacturing technology. And that's biology. So if we think about what biology is at a fundamental level... Um, every single cell on the planet is basically a little mini manufacturing facility. And every cell has little machines, and those machines are instructed by a cell's DNA code to turn nutrients into stuff. So flowers are production vehicles for beautiful fragrances. Um, Yeast is a production vehicle for ethanol and therefore beer and wine. Um, And apt to the times, um, our bodies, when we get a viral infection like COVID-19, actually manufacture these wonderful little medicines called antibodies. Um, So every cell on the planet is a manufacturing facility. And since we now have the ability to read biology, in other words, sequence DNA code to understand the blueprint of life, we are now transitioning to a phase where instead of reading, we can actually start to write and we can treat cells as technology. In other words, swapping out their, their natural machinery and rewriting their DNA code to turn them into scalable, sustainable, and economical manufacturing facilities for a limitless number of products from textiles to medicines and, and beyond. Um, and what we're doing at Celebre, our first application of that is effectively removing the need for agriculture completely from the the cannabis supply chain. And we do that by taking the machinery and the DNA code from the cannabis plant, putting that into small microbes like yeast. And when we feed those yeast sugar water in a fermentation process, like any brewery that you've ever been in, instead of making beer, we make pure, natural cannabis extracts and more specifically, cannabinoid isolates. Okay. Can you share a little bit about your background and journey and how you got into this space and started Celebre? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a first-generation American. My father came over on a boat from Italy uh, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, go Steelers, black and yellow. And I, uh, I loved math and science, so became an engineer, but I was terrible at it. So for the safety of humanity, I went to business school And then I spent um, almost a decade on Wall Street covering life science companies and healthcare technology companies, uh, most recently with J.P. Morgan's Healthcare Investment Banking Group. Um, From Wall Street, I then actually got hired by one of my clients um, who was trying to interestingly solve for the opioid epidemic, one of the things that kind of brought me full circle back to um, or to the cannabis space. 
I was with that company for a little while. It was out here in San Diego. And then I met a guy uh, by the name of Greg Lucier. And Greg is uh, arguably uh, one of the best healthcare executives, um, period. He ran uh, GE Healthcare for a little bit and then switched over and, and ran a company called Invitrogen which became Life Technologies, which he sold for $15 billion to Thermo Fisher um, and now has a bunch of different ventures. And, and I was fortunate enough to become friends with Greg and, and he's a great friend and a great mentor. And he really helped me expand my network when I moved out here. Um, and one of the first introductions he made was to a guy named Dr. Craig Venter. Uh, and Craig sequenced the first human genome back in the late 90s, early sure, 2000s. Yeah, but he announced that with Bill Clinton and the NIH. And he co-founded a company here in town uh, with a guy named Dr. Ham Smith, and Ham won a little thing called the Nobel Prize back in 1976. Um, and, and the company's called Synthetic Genomics. It's most famous for uh, its partnership with ExxonMobil on alternative carbon-neutral fuels and energy. And, uh, and basically, the premise for Synthetic Genomics is the same as Celebre, just different applications, and that is reading DNA, writing the code of life, basically, to develop advantaged manufacturing systems for products at scale. Um, and I, after meeting Craig, ended up joining the executive team at Synthetic Genomics. Um, I had the idea for Celebre when I was there. Unfortunately, I could not talk them into the application uh, for a whole host of reasons strategically for them. Um, so I decided in late 2017 that this was too good a, an opportunity and too perfect a foundational application to build a company upon um, that I left to to found Celebre uh, and and really kicked off the the uh, the process in in kind of early 2018. So that's a little bit on me. Yeah, and Craig Venter is he also involved in some something life extension related with Peter Diamandis? Do I have that right? Yeah, so Craig is involved in a bunch of different things. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure where they all sit. I haven't talked to him in in quite some time. But he had everything from synthetic genomics to the company you're thinking of is probably Human Longevity. Yes. Um, he is no longer at Human Longevity. Okay. That, that company was acquired and all the assets were acquired. But there were things that spun out of that uh, cancer therapeutic company called Cellularity uh, and, and a few other things that are, that are kind of still in stealthy mode. But, uh, okay. but yeah, he, he has had a bunch of different ventures uh, in, in his illustrative career. Okay. So... You mentioned, you know, talking about the cell and mechanics of it, but when you're trying to really introduce some, somebody to this, you're on an escalator. If you have to tell them in one minute or less what you do, how do you break it down into something so simple anybody can understand? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really tough one, right? And that's been part of the difficulty of our journey because we're, we're kind of melding the world's most sophisticated science with something that is currently federally illegal, right? And quite honestly, not very sophisticated at large from an industry perspective. So, you know, the way I always break it down is a little bit like I, like I broke it down for you earlier. And that is, Anytime you think about biology, I want you to think about cells as little manufacturing facilities. Picture in your mind a Ford assembly line. And that Ford assembly line is taking inputs, which are just simple nutrients, in our case, sugar, and then slowly but surely over the course of many steps using machinery, which in a cell is, is an enzyme, 
to change that sugar into one product, into the next product, into the next product, into the next product, until eventually you have your finished car at the end, which in our case would be CBD or some other cannabinoid. So I always say what we're doing is we're programming little mini molecular manufacturing facilities that in fermentation will be able to make the products we program them to make. Okay. And so part of what you're doing, you describe as kind of mimicking the plant. And what do you mean when you say mimic exactly? Yeah. So when many people hear about our technology, they immediately think uh, pharma and genetic modification and, uh, and, and synthetic is one that we get a lot. We've, when you do this technology properly, we actually aren't manipulating anything other than the manufacturing facility, right? So think about that cell again as the manufacturing facility. So um, what we make, the product that comes out the back end, is very different than what the plant makes. The plant is very complex and actually very interesting genetically and biologically. But when you do an extract from the plant, what you end up with is a collection of 400 different chemicals in varying concentrations sitting in a lipid or a plant fat, right? The oil as, it, as it's referred to. Um, so what we're saying is that's really hard to scale. That's really hard to develop products around. Um, and it's really hard to get the same experience every time. And I think any cannabis user would tell you that's, that's true. And it gets even more true when you start talking about new form factors like edibles or vapes or patches or pills. Um, so our view was, well, wait, wait a second. What if we could, instead of having products be defined by the plant, have them actually be defined by the brand or by the innovator? So while our technology will make isolates, what we're able to do is to design each cell to make a specific isolate. So one cell will make CBD, so we'll have one fermentation tank that makes CBD, but we will have a refrigerator full of these mini cell factories, each of which can make its own component of the plant. So what that will allow for is basically for an innovator to say, hey, I just want a one-to-one CBD to CBN ratio of ingredient in my gummy. Can we make that? And the answer is yes, we will scale each one of those. The cost will be significantly less and basically the same for each one and allow them to have the exact same combination of natural cannabinoid in each one of their gummies. But if someone else came to us and said, hey, Ben, we have um, a really interesting cultivar, say, you know, like a Doug's Varian, which is very high in THCV concentration, a really interesting cultivar. Um, but the problem is we can't scale this. We can't mimic this at scale. What we can do is we can actually take a look at that cultivar and say, what does it look like chemically? Um, what is the cannabinoid concentration? What is the terpene profile or the flavonoid profile? And then we could take each one of those individual components and scale them and then mix them together in that exact concentration so that your Coca-Cola is the same in China as it is in Texas, as it is in Portugal. Um, and then as a brand, you're able to take that specific experience and make it the same. Um, and then for us, where it becomes really interesting is we tend to believe that people are underestimating the market opportunity for cannabinoid-based products. And the reason that I say that is they're thinking about these products in the context of the traditional ag and extraction kind of market opportunity. And there you're limited by a number of factors. One of them we already talked about, which is consistency. The second is cost. Not everybody can afford a $75 bottle of CBD 
Uh, and technologies like ours will drop that dramatically, thus opening up access to, quite honestly, the patients and customers that need these things the most. And then the next one is the flavor profile of cannabis is not one that is appealing to everybody, right? There's a reason that Juul um, had so much momentum, and we forget the controversy side of, of the Juul uh, thesis, but there's a reason they had so much success, and that's because everybody that likes sucking on tobacco, right? Um, people would much rather consume something that tastes like strawberries or blueberries. And I think you're going to see the same thing in cannabis, right? That's the reason edibles, as an example, are, are very interesting. And you see a lot of people trying to remove the quote-unquote hemp taste, right? So with our technology, we would be able to take these really interesting mixtures uh, that you find naturally in these plants, scale them, but then combine them with different terpene profiles or different flavonoid profiles, and honestly make the product development process almost infinite. So people that wouldn't have tried something that tastes like pine trees before may be uh, interested in trying a product that, for instance, tastes like peaches, right? Um, so we think we actually open up kind of that opportunity quite a bit. Did that answer the question? Yes. And you mentioned price points in your example, bringing down price points, let's say a one-to-one CBD ratio to THC. Can you give us a sense of what price points you think are realistic so we can get an idea? Yeah. So it's very interesting in the market right now, right? So if you think about ag and extraction, you're seeing a lot of CBD, for instance, flooding certain markets for six fifty a kilo, seven fifty a kilo for pure isolate, um, and those are they're not making money on that, right? That that's loss making. Um, we think the actual steady state pricing from agriculture for cannabinoids, and we bench everything to CBD. Um, because we think CBD and THC are the ones that you're going to be able to get from the plant at scale. Um, it, it would take a long time to breed plants to make some of these these minor cannabinoids. So we try and benchmark everything to those two. And if you want to look at the best processors in the world, you're probably looking at $400 to $700 a kilo for kind of your, your broad spectrum extracts. And then another 1,000 to 1,500 in downstream processing to get to kind of your isolate forms, right? So th- that's, those are the metrics that we're trying to compete with. Because on price, we believe if we can compete with that and then remove the need for three to six-month growth cycles, remove pesticides and heavy metals from the equation because we're in pharmaceutical-grade type production facilities where we don't have those issues, and uh, obviously the allowing for defining your product rather than having the plant define it for you, uh, all of those kind of outweigh the, the, the benefits of, of, of kind of plant-derived. So that's the, the basis on which we look at it. As far as where our technology goes, we are extremely confident that we get sub $1,000 per kilogram. And I'm not just talking CBD. That'll be the price point to think about um, for any of the cannabinoids, including the miners, because we are not defined by the plant or how the machinery in the plant works or how the plant uses its nutrients, we're actually defining that for our production facilities. So our cost of goods for CBD will be the same as CBN, will be the same as CBDV, uh, you know, within a, within a range, but not a material range uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, because those aren't really the, the driving factors in, in economics of this technology. So you should be thinking about sub $1,000 a kilogram. Um, given what we've seen in the lab here early days, we are super confident that we can get that below $500. 
Um, and this is not guidance in any way, shape, or form, but it is, you know, the, the next statement that I'm going to make is something that people should keep in their back of their mind, whether they're farmers figuring out their strategy or their product companies thinking about what can I really bring to market and how should I be thinking about my own internal R&D. Um, if you were to scale technologies like ours and hit metrics that are well within the means uh, uh, of hitting, you could see these molecules be produced at a cost of goods nearing $100 per kilogram, which obviously is a complete game changer as it relates to this supply chain. Okay. Yeah, that, that would be a huge game changer. And it would, off, it would open up a huge number of products that are right now too expensive. You mentioned $70 CBD for someone that's on a smaller income is just a non-starter. What other kind of products would, would be opened up when the price points come down that low? Yeah, I mean, to be if we're honest with ourselves, and this is one of the things that drives me crazy about the industry. I mean, how many times on LinkedIn, Matt, do you see a post from, you know, one of these cannabis websites that says CB, put a random letter in there, new cannabinoid discovered is the next big thing in cannabis, right? right. Have we seen a thousand of those in the past? Right. In the past, you know, three years. I think if we're honest with you, with each other, we have no idea. We honestly, while this plant has been probably the most studied plant um, in the history of mankind, the reality is not all science and not all study is valid. Um, a lot of the studies in science that have been reported on on this plant are just not well done. Um, and they're, they really don't tell you much, right? They kind of directionally tell you where you should be looking, but there's nothing out there that's super definitive. Um, so I, I would say first and foremost, what our technology really is going to allow us to do is to understand this plant at a deeper level and understand all of its components individually, but also start to understand them in combination. So what I would say is, you know, at a high level, I am very confident in saying there are anti-inflammatory properties in cannabinoids that are very interesting in a whole host of different applications, um, whether that be wellness, whether that be recovery, uh, whether that be uh, cosmetics. Um, there are a bunch of different uh, kind of product categories you can be thinking about there. I think the data in sleep is very, very interesting. Uh, that's a massive category. Um, and then obviously, there's the intoxicating chemicals. A lot of uh, my cohorts, and you know, this is one of the things that makes it difficult to Celebre, is that we won't lie to people, right? We think, uh, we think THC production is going to be important. We think that that's a, a very big market. Um, and I think you're going to, I think everybody is pretty much aligned that you're going to see some cannibalization of, you know, these traditional markets uh, in, in the recreational, whether that be alcohol uh, or, or cigarettes. I think you're going to see some cannibalization there uh, with these products as well. And then I think the big thing is form factor, right? Not everybody wants to smoke something into their lungs. Um, and when you start thinking about edibles as an example, I'm sure that all of your listeners, and I'm sure you yourself know people who have taken edibles and from the same package, get an experience one day that is wonderful. And a next, the next day from the same package, get something that's anxiety inducing, right? And that's because your body metabolizes things very differently based on the method of consumption and taking something into the stomach where 
as an example, the enzymes in your stomach are converting THC delta-9 into a chemical that is multiples more potent depending on your specific metabolism, um, that's, that's hard to deal with when you're dealing with a plant that makes 400 chemicals simultaneously and at different concentrations, right? So um, I think when we think about this, you know, from a product category perspective, we think all of the products that exist today will still exist. Um, but we think there's an ability to kind of open that up with different form factors, new formulations, um, and also new combinations of cannabinoids with things that are not found in the plant, other natural flavors, other natural terpenes. Um, and I think it's almost limitless. We hear some really interesting ideas from people. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, as an example, we talked to a Fortune 500 company that um, – claims, and I haven't seen the actual data, but in talking to them about potential partnerships down the road, once we're ready to go, um, they said their cosmetic group actually has a cannabinoid formulation that tightens the skin and compete with Botox, right? So, I mean, who the heck knows what the applications are? But what I would say is pump the brakes, right? As an industry, don't try and make a quick buck, play the long game. We do not need to make a bunch of claims that we haven't substantiated yet. There's a lot of good found within this plant. There's a lot of opportunity to go around for everybody. And let's just take our time and study it because I think we owe that to our patients and our consumers. So cellular agriculture has been around for a number of years and we've heard things about it and it kind of pops on the radar every once in a while. You're deep in the weeds here. How come it hasn't come very far until now like it nothing's nothing's happened at scale yet and we keep on hearing it's right around the corner what have people that have or businesses that have tried this in the past not done right to get the scale correct yeah and are you talking about specifically in cannabinoid production matt yeah yeah so i it, before we dive into that i think it's important for people to know that this technology has not only existed but it's been commercial and and more than likely by the way you've consumed something that's been made this way. I'll give you an example. Our chief scientific officer at Celebre developed the platform that was licensed to a big ingredient company to make DHA, which is one half of, of what's known as fish oil. And many people think when I'm taking my fish oil tablet, I'm you know taking this oil that was derived from a fish. The reality is it's actually from a vat somewhere in the middle of Iowa right? So many different supplements, many vitamins have been made using this technology. Actually, 50% of the world's medicines are made using this technology today. Insulin being, a, being an example that I use because everybody has someone in their life that is diabetic and has taken insulin before. Um, believe it or not, we used to get insulin from a pig pancreas. We used to actually extract it from the pig pancreas until some smart scientist said, well, wait a second, pigs aren't really scalable for medicine. There's got to be a better way and they move that production to fermentation. So what I would say is this technology has been around for a long time, and it has been used to actually commercialize billions of dollars worth of, worth of products. Um, the big flaw in many of the applications, especially in the early days of this science, kind of early to mid-2000s, uh, biofuels is the one that kind of comes to, to, to my mind um, first, is that it is really hard to make this work in commodity industries. So when we were doing DHA production, as an example, we had to get our cost of goods into the tens of dollars. That's really hard to do. When you're doing 
this in fuel, you have to take a $400 a ton input and turn it into a $600 a ton output, right? Those things are really hard to do given the economics. We don't have that economic constraint with cannabinoids. And it's not because it, you know it's some molecular molecule that can't be found anywhere on earth. Quite the opposite. You could grow cannabis on every single square inch of the planet, right? Um, if, you, if you really chose to uh, and bred your plants properly, of course, uh, or built greenhouses. But the nature of the plant, given that it makes 400 chemicals simultaneously and all of those chemicals look alike and they're in a lipid form factor when you extract them, makes that manufacturing process really difficult and provides that floor from an economic perspective. So um, it's the reason that we believe this is the perfect foundational app for what we're building at Celebre, which is a broader kind of manufacturing technology company. Um, On cannabinoids specifically, yes, you have been hearing about this for quite some time. Uh, And there are multiple reasons reasons it hasn't come to market yet. Um, The first is, um, if you've ever seen Moore's Law in computing, Mm -hmm. biology is actually improving at a much more rapid pace. And I would encourage you to Google Moore's Law versus genomic sequencing costs. That's actually a really good graph. And it'll show you how much faster genome sequencing has come down versus versus Moore's Law since uh, my old colleague Craig sequenced that first human genome. Um, and, and what that tells us is that biology is kind of, you know, figuring all of this out as part compute and part discovery on the biological side. So I will tell you that the tools and capabilities required to actually pull off this science have come a long way in the last decade and quite frankly, a long way in the last five years. So our ability to actually execute on the science um, has improved dramatically since folks like my friend Jason at Labride uh, or, the, or the guys at Hyacinth uh, who were early, early, early in the idea of moving cannabinoid production to fermentation since they got started. Uh, that's number one. Number two, scaling biology is not trivial. Um, you know, when you're in a lab, you can control almost every variable. I can control the temperatures that my cells are growing at. I can control the pH levels. I can control... Um, oxygen transfer rates, how much oxygen is getting into those fermentations by supplementing it. You don't have that luxury when you move to 10,000 liter or 100,000 liter fermentation tanks. Um, So, you know, the approach that we take here, uh, which may be different than a lot of people, is this idea of scale down, the idea that we do not run an experiment in our lab that cannot be replicated at scale. We're not trying to write a science paper. We're not trying to show data to get investor dollars. We are doing things to actually drive a commercial solution. Um, And I think a lot of times when people have less experience uh, or have not scaled the technology before, they tend to get very, very excited about preliminary data in the lab, not recognizing that that does not necessarily translate to scale. Um, and, and your point is a valid one. I often, you know, when people said, well, Ben, how are you guys going to make this work when these other people have been trying? And the, the, ter- the, the phrase I use is that people have been telling uh, the industry and their partners that they would be commercial in 18 months for about six years now, right? Um, I think we are now at the point from a technology perspective, but also from a player's perspective, who's actually working on this science, um, that you're going to see these technologies start to come on commercially um, 
you know, some people saying as early as later this year, but my guess would be kind of 2021, 2022 timeframe. There are a couple of organizations out there um, other than obviously my bias towards, towards Celebre and, and the team here um, that I think are just tremendous at this science, doing a great job and will 100% get there. So you're saying we're kind of in an exponential leap mode in terms of where the genetic sequencing is similar to Moore's law. It's just the hockey stick is going upwards like right now. Yeah. And for, for just from a capabilities perspective, right? So let me give you one example of that. Um, at Celebre, we take a little bit of a different approach. So if you talk to anybody else doing this science, they'll probably tell you that they're, they're programming baker's yeast to do this, right? That's the amorouses of the world, probably Ginkgo, Demetrix is using, is using baker's yeast. Um, we don't start there. We flip that whole thing on its head and we say, can we find an organism that already does some of the things that we want it to do? The analogy that I use is, is using baker's yeast to make cannabinoids is kind of like using the Ford factory to make iPhones, right? Could you do it? Sure. But you got to swap out a lot of machines and rewrite a lot of programming and move things around on the floor. And it's just a lot of work. So what we do is we go find the Samsung Galaxy factory, right? And say, okay, let's use this to make iPhones. We're kind of closer to the end point, right? Um, and that may seem simple and obvious, but the problem is we're dealing with little manufacturing facilities that are actually living critters, right? So when you change them, nature has a tendency to turn around and kick you in the shin. Um, so when you do that, you have to first be able to sequence that organism very, very precisely and define your blueprint. The sequencing costs have gone from tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars down to hundreds of dollars. So we can now bring in 40 cells, sequence them all, and it's really not a big expense for us. If we were to do that 10 years ago, we would have had to do a complete fundraise just to sequence genomes of the little of the little cell factories we were trying to get the blueprint for, right? Um, that's one example. The other example is there are tools out there that have been discovered just in the last five years that allow us to rewrite the DNA code, get the code in there that we need to get in there, um, even down to printing DNA. So how do we make DNA? How do we make DNA to, to actually instruct these cells? It's not a computer program, right? We're not writing it in some digital world. DNA, the code of life, is actually a, a physical part that we need to put into these cell factories. And the cost of making that DNA has come down precipitously, right? So it's a combination of all of these things that are kind of enabling this technology uh, at large to really take hold uh, and actually become a reality. Okay. And you had mentioned to me before that you think CBG is going to be one of the big uh, products that first come out of the lab. Can you explain why you think that is? Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't make the claim that I think it's going to be a big product. I would say I have no idea um, because we're getting some interesting data on CBG, but I would never want to sell a product that we haven't studied for safety, for toxicity, right? It's very different than consuming, you know, CBG in an oil with a bunch of other chemicals where CBG is not a major player. When you're taking it in isolate form in milligram quantities or larger, we haven't done those studies yet, right? We don't know what the short-term impact is, what the long-term impact is. And most importantly, we don't know what the efficacy is, right? What is CBG actually doing for you? There's some interesting stuff out there, but, but, but we haven't studied it nearly enough to really know. Um, I will tell you, though, that it'll be the first product available from cellular agriculture. And the reason for that is we, by definition, 
have to make CBG first. CBG is the mother cannabinoid. It's either CBG or CBGV, right? If you wanted to make the Vs. Um, you have to make that first in your chassis organism or your, or your first cell factory because you can't make CBD until you make CBG, right? So um, we will have a cell that is able to make that that product first. When we model or when we talk to people, we're not saying that we're going to make big quantities or sell big quantities of that. Um, you know, it's a high revenue, high margin product if we can. Uh, I think the selling price that I've seen in the marketplace for plant-derived CBG isolate is somewhere in the $25,000 to $30,000 a kilo range right now. Um, tough to get from a plant, but there's a couple of folks out there that do it, do it really well. Um, but again, I just don't know what the market opportunity is there. Um, the big conversations that we have had, uh, around our CBG are really in the cosmetics realm, um, where, uh, I personally, as an operator feel a little bit more comfortable when you're not ingesting things and it becomes more of a topical application from a safety perspective. Um, and the folks that we're talking to are doing those studies and, and, and looking at it very heavily. So I would say, you know, everybody, you know, some of our competitors, and colleagues are very close to vest with what their first cannabinoid product will be. Um, if you understand the biochemistry, you know that all of them are going to make CBG first because they have to. That makes sense. Yep. And so how does Celebre make money in this new ecosystem that's kind of evolving rapidly? Yeah, look, so um, I think first and foremost, when you're building a business, you should know what you're good at and more importantly, know what you're not good at. And what we are really, really good at at Celebre is is engineering cells to be manufacturing facilities. That's our bread and butter. It's what we do. Um, People are like, people (laughs) often say, well, Ben, will you make your own products and kind of build your own brands? I find brand building to be more binary than biotech. I have no idea why the Kardashians sell a product. To me, I could never, one plus one will just never equal two there for me. I won't get it. Clearly, I'm in the minority, um, but brand building is really, really hard, right? So, Ultimately, our business model is to let people who build brands, let pharmaceutical companies who develop drugs, let animal health companies who understand those supply chains, those markets, and those needs, both in companion animal and livestock animal, um, tell us, hey, Ben, here's our product and here's what we need from you at scale. Uh, And basically become an ingredient or API, which stands for Active Pharmaceutical Ingredient Provider for those businesses. Um, I think number one for us as a, as a technology company that alleviates the binary risk, right? It alleviates the binary risk of taking a drug through the clinic. It alleviates the binary risk of trying to build a brand and get distribution. And it allows us to take our technology and put a lot of shots on goal so that we ultimately can can kind of grow the portfolio of partners that we have. Um, That's important for this technology because this technology more than any other is all about scale and economies of scale more specifically. The bigger your production facility and the more you make per dollar of capital investment, the more product you can make per dollar of capital investment, the better your cost of goods gets. Um, at small scale, really hard to make a business out of, out of fermenting natural products. But once you get up to 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 liter fermentation tanks, the cost of goods drops precipitously 
um, and the opportunity becomes massive. So for us, you know, people are always send folks my way from small edibles companies or small cosmetic companies, and I'm always happy to talk to them. There's some great ones out there. Um, but for us, we talk mainly to Fortune 200 companies, large MSOs, large Canadian operators, um, and a couple of countries actually. Um, that really want to get into kind of the scale game. Because for us, that's what we need to be truly successful and drive margin. Okay. Now you turned me on to an article called Cannabis, the New Vanilla. Can you talk about what that means and what you think about it? Absolutely. And for those looking, uh, that was written by an internet friend of mine, Jim, with the Thai Cannabis Corporation. So if you look up Thai Cannabis Corporation, um, and, uh, and you look for, uh, cannabis is the new vanilla. It's a great piece by Jim. Um, and, and I recommend it highly. I, I send that to people all the time to, to kind of think about ingredients, but, um, and, and, and Jim obviously, you know, has, has a bias and has, has an agenda. He is part of the group that is trying to define what the cannabis industry in Thailand will look like. He also does a lot of fantastic work around kind of, small cannabis in uh, emerging markets and small countries. Um, and he has a really interesting thesis around that from a plant perspective. Um, if we think about where the plant came from, it came from Asia and the Middle East, right? It, it wasn't native to, to North America. And actually, most of the North American cannabis is not that interesting. Um, but he wrote that piece really in the context of, hey, as farmers, what should we be worried about and how should we be thinking about our businesses and our commercialization as new and novel technologies come into the space? And the reason vanilla is such an interesting example uh, is that it checks almost every box that cannabis does. It's very expensive. It's a very high value product. It's very complex. Uh, vanilla is made up of over 170 different chemicals versus cannabis, which is over 400. Um, and vanilla is driven by a couple of minor uh, chemicals that are in that mix of 170. The, the, the biggest discovery of which was something called vanilla in, which is uh, the chemical that was believed to kind of encapsulate the vast majority of the flavor and the fragrance from that, from that vanilla bean. Um, we chemically synthesize vanilla in today, and that's what you see in your artificial vanillas that are out there. Uh, and then the spice company McCormick said, well, wait a second, um, you know, vanilla in kind of captures it, but not really. Let's study this more further. And they broke down the vanilla into its individual components and said, what's really driving the essence of vanilla? And what they found was it wasn't 170. It was more like 20 or 30 chemicals. Um, that if you were able to mimic that collection of those chemicals, you could literally capture the same exact essence of vanilla. And I think we're going to end up with a similar thing here. Um, you hear a lot about this idea of the entourage effect, and it is statistical and scientific just gibberish to say 400 chemicals combined in various concentrations uh, that are never the same are some sort of magic potion for a certain ailment. It is, however, completely logical and has been scientifically proven to an extent that these cannabinoids do act in concert with one another um, and do have synergistic effects. In pharma and biotech, we would, this is often referred to sometimes as what they call combination therapies. So one medicine on its own does, has a certain amount of efficacy. Another medicine on its own has a certain amount of efficacy. When you use those two medicines in combination with one another, they actually have synergy and give you additional benefits or different benefits, right? I think we're ultimately going to find 
that 400 chemicals probably isn't the answer. For many applications, an isolate or one cannabinoid is not going to be the answer, but it's not going to be hundreds in concert. What you're going to find is it's a handful to tens or twenties that are likely going to drive the efficacy, drive the safety, and drive the experience around that. And I think what what Jim was uh, was also saying with that piece was that um, there has never been a wealthy farmer, right? If you think about where vanilla comes from, it's coming from very poor countries and very poor communities. um, And nobody's getting rich, you know, growing the vanilla bean. The people that are getting rich are kind of further up the supply chain, (coughs) uh, building brands, importing it, it, all of those good things. So I think it was really a warning to say, hey guys, pump the brakes. This, you know, while we're all calling this the green rush and everybody is very excited, um, we need to be thinking about the supply chain from every single angle so we can better position ourselves as farmers to receive as much of the benefit as possible on the back end. Um, I think the other thing that I would add there is, you know, often when I get into these conversations, kind of at this point, Matt, people say, well, wait a second, Ben, why do we even need the plant? Aren't you just going to replace the plant? Um, I want to be really clear that I don't think that ever happens. Um, I think that the market for flower and the market for plant-derived extracts, whether that be isolate, broad-spectrum, full-spectrum, um, in all the form factors, right, crumble or distillate, I think those, those markets are always going to be there. Um, and I think they're going to grow nicely, and I think they will be multi-billion dollar, if not tens of billions of dollars in, in market. Um, what I do think, however, though, is that technologies like ours grow the pie. And I think there are certain applications, whether it be pharma or cosmetics or edibles, where our technology is just a better mousetrap than using the plant as the production facility. So I actually don't think there's much competition between us and agriculture. I think it's actually a really synergistic relationship for brands uh, and innovators. Um, to really take what the plant does well and just reinvent it into new product categories and formulations. Okay. And where is Celebre right now in terms of raising capital? Yeah. So we raised, um, we raised a C, our first external capital was funded by founders uh, up until our first external capital raise, which was we closed in June of 2019. Uh, our investors there were our friends, Matt Hawkins, Cody Sanchez, and, and Dov at, at Entourage Effect Capital. Um, also, Tamara at Flatiron Venture Partners out of New York, now out of Colorado. They just, they just moved from New York City to Colorado. Um, and Ian Dominguez from, uh, from a spin-out from a hedge fund called Schoenfeld called Delta Emerald. Um, Great investors, great partners, uh, wonderful folks. And we have some other uh, interesting cannabis names uh, invested in us as well. CB1, uh, Arkitas, Bravos Capital, um, and and, and a few other names that that folks would know. Um, And also, I think it's important, especially in cannabis, for founders where they can at whatever level they can to, to invest alongside those investors um, just given how difficult it is, right? Uh, and I think it's especially true for us. So um, we have uh, we have more than enough runway right now, but we do 
think that it's prudent to put a little bit more capital on the balance sheet. And who, who wouldn't want to raise money in these beautiful conditions of global pandemic election year um, and protests in the street, right? So um, we were originally going to raise a Series A this year, uh, but we're being a little bit pragmatic. So I think what we're going to ultimately end up doing is putting a bridge facility in place, uh, really an amend and extend on our initial convertible note. Um, and uh, it, that way give us an extra 12 to 15 months of runway uh, beyond the runway that we already have, which should allow us to chop some pretty significantly wood on the scientific side, on the partnership side, um, while kind of skating past the current macro environment to put us in a better position to raise an official preferred priced round uh, in the, you know, call it Q1, Q2, 2021 timeframe. Okay. Well, Ben, I have some personal development questions for you to help listeners get a better sense of who you are as a person. With that, is there a book that's had a big impact on your life or your way of thinking that you'd like to share? Oh, geez. Um, God, there are... I am a, uh, I'm a big, I, I'm going to put reader in air quotes, even though we're, we're on a, a, uh, an interview here and not on TV. Um, I, I find a bunch of different topics really fascinating. Um, I think one of the authors that I got introduced to really early on um, that has changed my perspectives on a lot of things is a guy named Thomas Sowell. Um, he's considered in many circles to be a, a conservative thought leader. Um, but he's very interesting in the way he explains economics um, and explains really difficult topics that are apt to the day like race um, and economic inequality. He actually started his career as a full-blown Marxist. Um, and then after, um, after his education and kind of life experiences kind of moved over to a different way of thinking about economics. So I would say Thomas Sowell is probably, uh, probably my favorite author, if I was to define one there. Um, but as a startup founder, I would say there's a couple of really interesting books I would recommend. Uh, one is called The Power of Habit. That's a really good book on understanding how human beings, uh, when put into a circle of habit, actually become much more efficient in, in how they operate. Um, I think Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, is an excellent one uh, for people to, to take a look at and learn from. Uh, and then two more from a one more from a business perspective, uh, Safi wrote a book called Loon Shots, L-O-O-N Shots. Uh, it is a fantastic book on, on fostering innovation uh, with a lot of really good stories on kind of how, how companies think good, bad, or the ugly uh, about innovation. And then my own personal favorite is a book I wanted to write myself, um, and I would have written it in a completely different way than he did, but Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, um, I think is, is another one that I would, I would recommend, but I would also recommend thinking about that in a long, long way. Um, you know, it's a bit of a psychosis, but uh, I really don't care at all what other people think about me. You know, you know who you are personally and who you are as a human being, um, and, you know, don't be afraid to speak your mind. Don't be afraid to have opinions that are different than the mob. Um, if I didn't, I would have never had, you know, the, the uh, wherewithal to found Celebre, quite frankly. You're kind of, you know, you're, I'm, I'm counterculture in the counterculture. I'm a former banker slash biotech pharma guy getting into the cannabis space, right? Um, so I, I kind of have, don't have a safe space anywhere, uh, <laughs> if you want to think about it that way. So those are, those are some of the books and, 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 and authors that I find interesting, at least at this moment in time. 
what's the most interesting thing going on in your field besides what you're doing? Uh, in the field of kind of cellular agriculture and, uh, and, and just using biology as a manufacturing technology, you mean? Sure, even more broadly scientific and li- scientifically, if you'd like. Yeah, I think, um, so, uh, I, you know, I think the, you know, what's captured everybody's hearts and minds right now is, uh, is COVID-19, right? Uh, I actually jokingly with my investors told them we were going to do a press release that said Celebre is not working on anything COVID-19 related. Um, because I think we're the only company that didn't make a press release. Um, but for me, the most interesting things are those that are that are kind of the long game, right? Where uh, you're fundamentally changing how people think about things. And to keep it in our own world of biology, um, there are two that are super interesting that people probably don't know biology is going to impact. The first is computing. Um, I would encourage everybody to start read about biocomputing and biostorage. So, for instance, a company called Twist Biosciences has a partnership with Microsoft where they're looking to uh, move data storage into DNA. Um, if you think about DNA, right, our DNA code, 3 billion base pairs, stores all of the information that encodes how our crazy bodies and minds work. Um, you can pack an extraordinary amount of information into DNA and then extract that information by sequencing the DNA. So the entire Smithsonian archives uh, could literally fit inside an 8 by 10 office of DNA. Um, so we can really think about things like data storage and computing power very, very differently if we start seeing how nature does its quote-unquote compute. That's one area that's really interesting. The other area that's super interesting that, um, quite frankly, I don't think it ever works, um, and I keep challenging people on this, and I'm waiting for somebody to prove me wrong because it's my favorite application in all of food technology, a space that I really find interesting, um, and that is this idea of cultured meat, um, not plant-based meat like Beyond Meat or Impossible, but, but literally making the same exact Wagyu beef or the same exact tuna um, or the same exact chicken that you would get through traditional ang- animal agriculture, but doing it via fermentation. Um, so effectively fermenting the same exact meat products that we have today and fish products that we have today, but without the land use, without the implications of, of animal farming and the footprint that goes along with those and without obviously the cruelty. Um, I think that is one of the coolest things going on right now. There's a company called Memphis Meats that's leading the way there on the beef side. Uh, there's actually a company here uh, in in San Diego called Blue uh, Nulu who is is doing the same thing in in kind of fish. Um, I'll be honest, I don't see how how the economics ever work there. Um, I can't model it myself to to drive it down into dollars per you know, pound where you kind of need to be to compete in those commodity markets kind of comes full circle back to our original conversation of why these technologies have kind of failed in the past. Uh, But gosh, if that one could work and we could secure supply chains and start democratizing supply chains for protein production, I think that would just be awesome technology for the world at large and for, you know, geographies and and certain populations that quite frankly can't afford those nutrient-dense products today. You know, with the popularity of the ketogenic diet, it has a lot of people thinking about how they do feed their cells. Is it with glucose or, I guess, ketones or ATP? I know just enough to be dangerous here, but tell me, 
how do you think about how, you know, just eating food on your own? Are you religious in terms of what you eat and how you eat it? Cause you know how your cells are the fuel it's getting, or how do you think about it? I'm much worse than I should be brother. <laughs> uh, but in my defense, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh where we put French fries on our sandwiches. So yeah, there is some weird, there's some like long sandwich there that I've seen documentary about or something. What, what's that oh, called again? As you should, by the way, it's called Permani brothers. And actually, um, the reason it came into existence was because of the steel mills. Those guys used to only get 15 minute lunch breaks in this sandwich shop down the road. Permani brothers had a sandwich, coleslaw and French fries. And what they'd have is half of everything would get eaten. So one day, one of, the, one of the folks in the kitchen was like, hey, why don't we just slap all this together? So you get your Philly cheesesteak with your coleslaw. Uh, it's a vinegar-based slaw, not, a, not a, uh, a mayo-based slaw. And then French fries all between the bread. And then people were able to eat it all because they just didn't have time to be picking around the plate. Um, and it became kind of this late-night cult following um, it was, I think, on the first or second episodes of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Uh, another funny thing about Pittsburgh, I, I, we have a French fry problem, I guess. If you go to Pittsburgh and order a salad, there is a very high probability that there will be French fries on your salad. First, I would suggest everybody try it, but a, a really funny story is one of my best friends, he and his wife moved to New York City, and they lived in a very fancy part of New York City, and they went out to a restaurant, um, and she ordered a salad. And when the salad came to the table, it didn't have French fries on it, right? And they're with their, you know, their bougie New York, sophisticated, uh, you know, elite crowd. Uh, and she looked at the waiter and she was like, excuse me, where are my French fries? And he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you ordered French fries and we actually don't even have them on the menu. And she said, no, for my salad. And both of them then just stared at each other baffled because she was just confused that people made salads without French fries. So that's... Uh, that's Pittsburgh for you. But I, but I would say I'm much, I'm, I'm much less uh, good about diet than I probably could be or should be. Um, the one thing I do do, though, is I do not eat during the day. So I um, this kind of intermittent fasting thing, I didn't necessarily do it because it was trendy or healthy for me. I did it because I'm just a crazy person and I find myself um, throughout the day not eating. And the next thing I know, it's time to go home. Um, so I, I actually only consume black coffee during the day. Um, and then I eat between kind of, you know, a call it 5 PM and, uh, and 9 PM every night. Um, so that's wow. the one weird diet thing. I Do have. you put butter in the coffee or anything or just totally black? No, totally black. Don't be mucking up my caffeine with that other stuff. Yeah. And you're like, you're like a camel or some mutant. I think there's a cosmic balance because I'm eating five meals a day. They're small ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about diet, right? Is that, um, you know, in my feed is a a bunch of my friends um, who are in biotech and in food tech, quite frankly, um, are a lot of plant-based folks, a lot of vegan folks. And that mob will tend to yell at you and tell you how much more healthy vegan is than meat and and yada, yada, yada. Um, And what I always tell them is you have no idea because every single person is very, very different. It's a lot like cannabinoids, my friend. You know, how one person reacts to THC is very different than another person. It's the same with medicines. Some people can handle opioids. Other people's cannot handle it. Um, and diet is very much the same. And I think it's an iterative process. We don't know enough yet. 
uh, to really define it for you to find what makes you feel better, what makes you have more energy, what makes you feel more healthy. Um, and I think anybody making a blanket statement on anything is one thing and one thing only, and that's wrong. But that is especially true when it comes to diet. I think diet is just very individual. Agreed. Well, Ben, as we close, can you tell accredited investors how to get on any kind of mailing list or anything and how potential customers or clients might be able to reach out to you if they want to know more about Solibre? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that opportunity. So we do have a contact me on our website. It's www.celebre.com and Celebre is spelled C-E-L-L-I-B-R-E. Um, and then, you know, as far as investors go or partners go, um, you can always look me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to reach me. So it's Ben, B-E-N, Shirelli, C-H-I-A-R-E-L-L-I. I'm super active on LinkedIn. I do my best not to talk my own book. Um, I actually get yelled at by my investors sometimes for not talking enough about Celebre's business, but I just find that uninteresting. Uh, I like to get involved in, in more topics and I, it's done us a lot of good from a relationship perspective where we're not out, you know, as a billboard and a sales team the whole time, we're actually trying to add, you know, value to conversation. So I would say, look me up on LinkedIn, reach out anytime, uh, even if it's not for partnerships or even if it's not for, for investment, we're always happy to be helpful to our friends on the agricultural side, to investors who are just looking for a broader network scientifically, uh, both in cannabis and in biotech. We, you know, I, I think it's better to just be helpful first uh, and, and expect nothing in return. That's, that's really, for me, what life is all about and how you build real lasting relationships. And this is a fascinating area you're in. Good luck to you with all you have going on and keep us posted. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for having me. A pleasure as always. And, and if I can ever be helpful to you in any way beyond this, please do let us know. If you enjoyed the show today, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you might be using to listen to the show. Every five-star review helps us to bring the best guests to you. Learn more at canninsider.com forward slash iTunes. What are the five disruptive trends that will impact the cannabis industry in the next five years? Find out with your free report at cannainsider.com forward slash trends. Have a suggestion for an awesome guest on Canna Insider? Simply send us an email at feedback at cannainsider.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Canna Insider or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments. Promotional consideration may be provided by select guests, advertisers, or companies featured in Canna Insider. Lastly, the host or guests on Canna Insider may or may not invest in the companies or entrepreneurs profiled on the show. Please consult your licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Final disclosure to see if you're still paying attention. This little whistle jingle you're listening to will get stuck in your head for the rest of the day. <laughs> Thanks for listening and look for another Canna Insider episode soon. Take care. Bye-bye.